What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Renewable Energy Smart Pod. I'm your host, Sean McMahon, and my guest today is Michael Ducker from Mitsubishi. Michael's an expert on green hydrogen, and green hydrogen is certainly enjoying a bit of a moment in renewables news circles, so we're going to be hearing his insights on developments in that sector. And along the way, we even take a few minutes to geek out about a key component of the green hydrogen storage system, salt caverns. Yes, salt caverns. Salt caverns the size of the Empire State Building. Looking ahead to future episodes of this podcast, I'll be chatting with Janice Lynn of the Green Hydrogen Coalition. That's right, we're going with back-to-back episodes about green hydrogen to help you gain a deeper understanding about how green hydrogen fits into the energy transition. Also on the calendar, Michael Rucker. Michael's the founder and CEO of Scout Clean Energy. He'll be joining us in a few weeks to share his insider look at how the renewables industry continues to evolve. So that's a look at what's coming up on future episodes. But before I kick off my conversation with Michael Ducker, I'd like to share a quick message from the exclusive sponsor of today's episode, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. Mitsubishi Heavy Industries is one of the world's largest industrial groups, delivering innovative and integrated solutions across a wide range of industries incorporating land, sea, sky, and space. MHI. Move the world forward. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining me today. Our guest is Michael Ducker from Mitsubishi. Michael, how are you doing today? Good, Sean. How about yourself? I'm doing great. So we're here today to talk about green hydrogen. But before we get into that, I just want to hear more about your background and what your role is at Mitsubishi. Sure. So I'm Michael Ducker, Vice President Renewable Fuels for Mitsubishi Power, uh, and effectively overseeing our efforts here uh, in in providing carbon-free fuels and energy storage for the power industry. All right. So a lot of our listeners might not be that familiar with hydrogen or the various colors that are used to describe the different ways hydrogen is produced. So can you just walk us through the various colors, you know, green, blue, gray, et cetera, and explain how they all differ? Sure. So, I mean, for, for an actual colorless gas, it sure does have a lot of color nicknames. As you said, we've got blue, green, gray, brown, turquoise. You know, ultimately, at the end of the day, the colors are, are really generally intended to designate the process by which the hydrogen's made. So, for instance, gray hydrogen is commonly re- referred to, uh, and that's the traditional method of how we have hydrogen produced today. Uh, this is a process of taking natural gas and converting it to hydrogen through a process known as C-methane reforming. But this produces CO2, carbon dioxide. And so as we have looked at different uses for hydrogen, this is where some of the colors have evolved. So uh, in this case, if we actually capture the CO2 uh, in the process uh, that I just referenced, that's often referred to as blue hydrogen. And then conversely, we have cases where we talk about green hydrogen, which is really looking at taking renewable energy or or non-fossil fueled resources Uh, through a process known as electrolysis, which converts water, uh, uses electricity, convert water into hydrogen and oxygen. uh, And that is where we can produce hydrogen that way. But, you know, really at the end of the day, all all these different colors really are just, uh, again, trying to target the the process by which hydrogen is made. I think for us, our focus on is on really trying to derive carbon-free forms of hydrogen. And so whether that's through CO2 capture or using renewable energy, all those are, are different exciting ways to produce hydrogen and, of course, have uh, no impact uh, from a carbon emission standpoint. Okay, great. And I definitely want to talk about Intermountain. But before we get to that, I want to kind of take our listeners through you know, the role of electrolyzers here. First of all, what they do, 
where they at, what needs to be improved, how much bigger they got to get and things like that. So just give us a quick recap on the role electrolyzers play in this process. Yeah. So electrolyzers are really a technology that we take water and electricity and when we apply a current within this technology. We decompose water into its elemental forms of hydrogen and oxygen. Uh, as I mentioned, this actually dates back to the 1940s. So when we're approaching a century where we've had applications and uses of, of uh, electrolyzers, the technology is not new itself and in in electrolysis has been around even prior to that. So what's really changed today is that we're now seeing the need to uh, use electrolyzers to effectively support the conversion of renewable energy into hydrogen and whether that is being used for fuel applications, say in the transportation sector, uh, or in the power side, like I discussed, where we're actually overproducing, what do I do with this excess energy? And I want to run it through an electrolyzer uh, to be able to uh, effectively convert electricity into a form of storable energy, that being hydrogen. All right. Now, anyone out there who follows the energy industry knows that there's been a lot of headlines uh, about green hydrogen. So what is the promise of it and the potential of it? And where do things stand right now? So, yes, as you said, there, there certainly has been a, a, a huge momentum and, and groundswell really in the past year and a half, two years uh, around hydrogen. And, and I think even stepping back, uh, I've been in the industry some time and those that have been in the industry some time too know early 2000s, uh, we were talking a lot about hydrogen. The hydrogen economy was, was just upon us, but it never came to fruition. Uh, and why is that? Well, the market signals back in the early 2000s are fundamentally different than they are today. You know, today we have unprecedented amount of renewable energy that is installed on a grid at low costs. We have state and local governments. We've got utilities that are committing to carbon-free targets within the next several decades, and they're making significant investments to achieve those goals. And so all this comes together into what is the most cost-effective and reliable way to meet these carbon-free goals, and what are the technologies out there? And that's really why there's the promise and excitement around hydrogen today is these very tangible commitments that are being made by policymakers by, uh, and industries. We even go back to the, the ultimate end users. Today, we've got uh, some of the biggest corporations that are saying that no more will I buy any energy that it doesn't come in a carbon-free fashion. And so this is what's really created that need for hydrogen. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about the use cases for hydrogen is not always necessarily just as a, what I would call a, a fuel for the power sector. We actually really see this as a form of energy storage that works in concert with other storage technologies like lithium-ion batteries to more reliably and cost-effectively integrate wide-scale renewables. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that. So the energy storage piece of it. And you mentioned it's it kind of coexists right now with lithium-ion or might even compete in some places. So what role does energy storage have in this and how does green hydrogen fit into the energy transition? Yeah, so I think one of the most important things to recognize is that green hydrogen as a storage medium and lithium-ion batteries do not compete. They work in concert with each other, solving different use cases. And both technologies are going to be incredibly important in a future where we're looking at wide-scale deployment of renewables and, again, a need for reliable, affordable energy on the power grid. So uh, Mitsubishi offers both solutions, and we talk with our customers a lot of times about this, right? So you know, what is their use case application? What are they trying to solve? And when we're looking at that intradaily energy imbalances, where we've got you know, the proverbial, the sun uh, is up in the middle of the day, we've got great solar resources, the sun comes down. Uh, at the end of the day, what do we do as people are coming home from work? 
that's a great use case for batteries. You were charging in the middle of the day where we were peaking and late in the day, uh, lithium-ion batteries can help trying to close that gap between uh, demand and, and supply. Hydrogen works a little differently in the sense of what happens when we have sustained periods of overproduction? For instance, in the spring months where we've got an overproduction of renewables consistently, we've got, say, the, the spring melt that's also supporting hydrogen uh, hydropower. And how do we transition that to periods of gluts, say, deep in the summer, like we've been seeing here recently, uh, where we don't have enough power uh, during those periods of time? So that's where hydrogen plays a, a more fundamental role is this longer duration, more seasonal balancing. And it's becoming more and more important as we have larger and larger penetrations of renewables. So in short, again, batteries and hydrogen working in concert with each other, but two very different use cases that are helping us meet those uh, overall targets like we've talked about. So where's that cutoff in terms of you know use cases are working in concert? Is it just a certain amount of hours? I mean, obviously you said intraday for for lithium ion. So yes. at what point, where's the, where do they meet in the middle? I guess is what I'm yeah, asking. Yeah. So, so it really is. Uh, we see more as an intradaily, say intradaily energy arbitrage. That's where lithium ion batteries are most used and have their best use case. And those longer seasonal differences, particularly again, as we look at uh, even in California, a great scenario here is that uh, last year and even this year, we've been curtailing record amounts of renewables uh, in the wintertime, in the springtime, and yet last year in 2020, we had our first uh, rolling blackouts in California in over two decades in August. So we're curtailing energy in January, February, March, April, and we've got deficits in July, August, September. So we already see that use case today and lithium-ion batteries can't solve that problem shifting from month to month or season to season. This is where hydrogen really uh, has the, the bigger play in that interdaily, weekly, seasonal type of impact. So how far away are we from a, a point where, you know, hydrogen could provide that backup, you know, the longer term backup for those seasonal needs, whether it's like you said, through drought or even through cold, things like that. And, you know, again, how far away are we and what challenges stand in the way? Well, well I'd say we're there today already. And, and again, the use case I just talked about or the application is what we've seen in California. And we hear the same from customers in the Pacific Northwest uh, who also have concerns about as we're continuing to retire uh, traditional forms of energy that provided those backup capabilities, what am I going to do in those periods of time in, say, the summer or fall uh, if uh, I don't have adequate renewables available during those periods of time? And we're seeing those use cases, again, starting to come out actually today uh, and working with customers in these regions. It, it really is a function, too, of, of where we're at on the amount of renewables installed. Of course, out west, we do see significant amount of renewables installed today, and we see the market signals already materializing today. But also in other parts of the country, we see utilities in different states that are setting targets within the next 10, 20 years to be carbon free. And so for them to cost effectively meet those goals, we've got to start installing infrastructure today. We can't wait. Yeah, I guess that's what I was getting at when I said how far away are we? I mean, I know the, the use case is there and the need is there, like California and things like that, but we're still having energy scenarios, whether it's in Texas or California, anywhere where we have problems. So how far away are we from where hydrogen or other assets are being deployed? So blackouts just hopefully become a thing of the past. I guess that's what I'm at. And what's standing in the way of, of hitting that point? Yeah. So I think there's there's a, a number of items that, that create challenges. And, and I guess the great news is they're all solvable. Uh, so ultimately, these are not technology problems that we're dealing with. You know, if we look at hydrogen, we've been using hydrogen in electrolysis for almost a century now. 
Uh, we've been storing hydrogen in salt caverns using it in pipelines uh, since the 80s. Uh, and we have wide scale, good understanding of using hydrogen within even our gas turbines to convert that stored energy back to usable electrical. So all these technical challenges are, are already there. It really becomes more of a, a policy matter and how are we trying to meet these goals? And so if we just state, you know, in 2040, I want uh, carbon free uh, energy by that point in time, but we don't take tangible steps today to start solving. That's what's creating some of these challenges and mismatches of, uh, of energy. So what we are excited about right now is that many of our customers are starting to make those tangible investments today. And a great use case or point is the, the project over in uh, Delta, Utah, the Intermountain Power Plant, which has uh, already purchased hydrogen capable gas turbines. And in 2025, will be committed to using a blend of 30% hydrogen and 70% natural gas to meet this exact use case that I'm talking about here today. Okay. And so then from a cost perspective, what role do those play in it? And then and just bigger picture, where are we in, in the cost curve for green hydrogen as opposed to you know other sources of energy? So really what we're focused on right now is scale. And again, I've said many, many times here that the technology is not the challenge. It's really about getting uh, costs down and costs are a, a function of scale and scale is also a function on market needs. So we've got all this coming together right now. But when we look at how to get more hydrogen technologies into the market and more electrolyzers in the market, it really is a function of achieving more scale. So how do we make systems bigger? How do we automate processes better? Those are all important. And we're really just starting to scratch the surface because from a global standpoint, total hydrogen production from electrolysis accounted for about 3% uh, last year. And so the amount of current uses for hydrogen where we could apply electrolysis technologies, again, we're just scratching the surface. And now we talk about use cases in the power industry uh, and other fuel sectors. Uh, it really is about a commitment to scale. And so as we see policies and we see commitments from end users, that is going to also help drive scale. And that's also a part that Mitsubishi has been working on to help drive scale within the electrolysis supply chain. All right. And then which industries stand to benefit the most? Uh, if we reach a point where you know, green hydrogen is you know, widely adopted, which who's ahead of the game and who's going to benefit the most? Uh, ultimately, every industry will. And I think what's, what's really, I think, been the coolest part of my job lately is that hydrogen really is a catalyst to bring industries together. And so I am on the power side, but I've had more conversations with transportation companies, with oil companies, with chemicals companies in the past year and a half than I have in my entire career. And the reason being is because if I uh, have an application for hydrogen in the power sector, I can create tremendous scale. I mean, we're talking about 100, 200 tons per day type of demand. Uh, if we have a power plant just running at a fractional, you know, small percent of hydrogen, compare that to the transportation sector, where typically they're looking at about maybe one to five tons a day type of demand for a fueling station. So how great is it then if I can take uh, a transportation application and actually piggyback it off of a large-scale power application, now we have these synergies between industries. And so um, going back to, I'd say, who's going to benefit the most, I think it's more of a question of who's going to move first. And with the scale applications, we believe power is most prime to be the first mover, but that's going to naturally bring in some of these other industries who can then benefit from the scale that power is bringing. And at the end of the day, that's the most exciting part is that this is a uh, technology that's bringing multiple industries together to decarbonize at the same time, as opposed to trying to solve these problems discreetly and independently. 
We'll be right back. At MHI, we're driven by the needs of our partners and customers. We've grown into a truly global manufacturer, bringing together the best international innovation through partnerships and joint ventures. We're expanding our low-carbon business portfolio with developments in cutting-edge wind turbine technologies, the delivery of sustainable hydrogen gas turbines, and light water reactors that emit low-carbon baseload electricity and improvements in carbon cycle technologies. MHI. Move the world forward. And now... Back to my conversation with Michael Ducker from Mitsubishi. And you mentioned earlier what Mitsubishi is doing at Intermountain. So kind of walk me through that. What's going on at that facility in Utah and, and what's it doing now and what's the plan for growth there? So we've got actually two projects really in Delta, Utah. So first, we'll focus on the Intermountain power plant. And this is the world's first power plant that was intentionally designed to operate on green hydrogen. And what the Intermountain Power Agency is committed to is in 2025 to operate on a blend of 30% hydrogen, 70% natural gas, and no later than 2045, they will convert to 100% hydrogen. Uh, The technology they're using there is Mitsubishi gas turbines that have that capability to run on a blend of hydrogen and natural gas. And also we can convert that unit over time to be able to run on 100% green hydrogen. The other uh, project we have in Delta, Utah is our advanced clean energy storage project. So this was a joint venture between Mitsubishi and Magnum Development, where we partnered to build the world's largest renewable energy storage hub, uh, really creating a green hydrogen hub there in Delta, Utah. So here we're looking at gigawatt scale of electrolysis and uh, salt caverns, which are, as I mentioned earlier, able to safely and cost effectively store vast amounts of hydrogen. Just to quickly put that into perspective, one salt cavern can store roughly 150 gigawatt hours worth of equivalent energy. The entire United States right now, energy storage with lithium-ion batteries is about a gigawatt, two gigawatt hours. So we're talking nearly 150 times the entire United States installed base of batteries in one cavern. And by the way, it can do about 100 caverns at that site. So when we talk about scale and potential, it's, uh, you know, it is quite vast. So those are the two very exciting projects we've got going on over in Delta, Utah. Okay. I want to just kind of geek out a little bit on these caverns. So <laughs> how big are these things we're talking about? I've done some research and I'm seeing some like, I mean, as big as the Empire State Building or something like that. So that's correct. Yeah. We're about uh, 1500 foot tall. So uh, yeah, just under about the Empire State Building from uh, the size of the cavern. And again, if you put this in perspective, what's what's great with this storage capability is too, this is all underground. So, I mean, we're not talking about you know, effectively building cities of, of uh, skyscrapers of batteries or, or other technologies. This is all underground. There's already, well, first of all, there's thousands of salt caverns across the globe that hold uh, different commodities, whether it be natural gas liquids, even helium and hydrogen, again, has been used and stored here in these caverns. So it's a very well-known storage repository. It's a matter of here just applying it for the a, a different use case than we have had before. So you've got some as big as the Empire State Building, and you said you've got about a hundred of them in Utah. Are they all are they all that big? <laughs> we, we have the capability to so so actually what if we want to geek out a little bit more. Right now we've got five caverns already, what's known as solution mined. If you think about under the earth in Delta, Utah, there, it's a big salt block. And so how do you create a cavern? We actually uh, engineer these caverns. So what I mean by that, we're drilling a hole in the ground, 
we're actually then pumping in water and water uh, dissolves salt. And that's how you actually create a void. And we're able to uh, intentionally create this void vertically, horizontally to you know, certain specifications we want to keep mechanical integrity of the cavern, to make sure uh, you know, a certain number of volume and, and amount of hydrogen we want to store within those caverns are achieved. And at the end of the day, once we produce that cavern, we're just pumping out the, the water and pushing in hydrogen. So it's, it's actually created uh, intentionally by us under a you know, very defined process. Okay, thanks for that. Just geeking out on that. I just it just fascinates me. It blows me away that that's not. It's just something you you've got to go out to the site to see. I mean, it is, it is incredible to see. Uh, and we've already have a few brine ponds there that have you know effectively pulled out the the, the salt within the earth there. And uh, again, we've already got five caverns that are operating that are storing uh, other commodities besides hydrogen. But it's a sight to see. Okay, circling back to what you mentioned about the blend, the Mitsubishi gas turbines. Now it's you said you said it's seventy thirty right now, and is that right? Uh, correct. So that's at least what uh, the Intermountain Power Agency has um, targeted here for the twenty twenty five operations is a seventy percent natural gas, thirty percent hydrogen. And by twenty forty five, one hundred percent green hydrogen. Yes. Okay, so walk me through that process of the blend. You know, is is the infrastructure throughout the United States? Because obviously, what we found out a lot even just other sources of renewable is that, you know, we don't have the transmission to get either from the generation source to the grid or even move it around the grid. So where does the green hydrogen transmission or I guess gas pipeline network, where does it stand now and how ready is it for that transition and what needs to be done to kind of get there? Sure. So, you know, a couple of things to, to talk through there. So first of all, from a technology side, it's important to recognize that if we look at higher blends of, of hydrogen, the gas turbines today, it kind of goes back to what's the market need today? And at least right now in 2025, 2020, you know, where we stand almost in 2021, 2022, we don't necessarily need gigawatts and hundreds of gigawatt hours of storage today. But over time, we absolutely will. And so this is one of the biggest value propositions we have with the gas turbine infrastructure is I can over time dial up the amount of hydrogen that is used in that turbine as more and more renewables come onto the grid and as the needs to store more and more energy also evolve. And so it's a way to more cost effectively transition infrastructure over time. And again, this is really one of the biggest value propositions that our customers see with this is that can install affordable, reliable energy today, but also over time convert that to be effectively 100% carbon free energy storage resource as my market needs evolve. So that's on the, the, the gas turbine technology side. As far as the renewables and, and the delivery side, this is a multi-decade strategy. And so it is really important as we look at policymakers, integrated resource planners, and, and how we're trying to solve these issues. You know, everyone likes to say the more tools we have in the toolkit, the, the you know, more effective we can be. And that is really what is required today is to start analyzing these different use cases here for hydrogen, both for power sector and non-power sectors. And then how would I build infrastructure out over time more efficiently to be able to meet those needs as they're evolving over the next, you know, one to two decades. Okay. And then I know some policymakers are pondering more of these hydrogen hubs Mm -hmm. uh, throughout the U S at least. And so how many of those do you think we'll need to just power current demand? I'm not going to ask you to predict how much demand we're going to have in 30 years and what, but so in a perfect world where you just, you know, blank slate everything and we just decide to power everything with these hubs, how many would we need around the U S yeah, so it, it does become a, a somewhat of a combination between what distribution networks are out there from those hubs and, you know, again, what size they need to be. 
just to, to kind of focus at least on Delta, Utah, which we expect to be the world's first true actual hydrogen hub, uh, we are exactly working what you talk about, more the hub and spoke model. So how do we build out pipelines from that site to be able to provide cost effective storage and production within that area, but then also reach different parts of the Western U.S., whether it be within the, the desert Southwest or Pacific Northwest? In the interim, too, is there an opportunity for, say, liquefaction? And you know, do we need to look at liquefying hydrogen and be able to send that out within uh, the vicinity of at least Delta, Utah? So all of those are on table right now. It's really, again, a transition over time. I think we certainly expect to see many of these types of hubs throughout the U.S. And I think it will be a matter, too, of, of how quickly the rest of the, the spoke model can also work within those hubs. And to the degree we can have the much bigger spokes and the, the bigger pipeline networks, of course, then the less number of hubs we would necessarily need. And to the extent we need more of these micro hubs, if you will, then that will be important. Can I put you on the spot and ask you to guess when that time might be, when when we are kind of set up to power everything through these hubs? You want to take a wild guess at it or you got to, I guess, an educated guess at it? <laughs> yeah, so I, mean, I think, you know, we look at it right now, um, you know, 2025 is our target in Delta, Utah to start building at least that hub. Uh, and then you start getting the spoke aspect. It, it really is a function of policy and, and demand. But within that decade thereafter, uh, I think is, is, is truly achievable. And this is what we've been talking about with our customers is, how do I put together a plan that in the 2030s, we do have this type of network where you can benefit from this interregional use of renewables and balancing of storage and then also hydrogen production? And again, not just for the power sector, but for other sectors as well that are trying to decarbonize. So in the 2030s is absolutely in line with where we're starting to see the opportunity to build out much more than just a very specific hub, but the actual distribution piece of it as well. We're also talking a lot about kind of, you know, as we're building back from the pandemic, you know, building back better and building back greener. So where does Mitsubishi as an entity and also this technology of green hydrogen, where do those fit into that effort? So I think what we've seen firsthand is no matter what, this type of infrastructure, energy is critical to human prosperity. And as we look at the evolving needs too, it's not just about energy. It's also how do I make sure it's clean and, and, and carbon free to support and mitigate the impacts of climate change. So Mitsubishi's been making very significant investments in developing the supply chains, in developing this infrastructure. And I go back to even, again, just our investment there in in Utah. This is really us working to develop the market. And I think the positive side of that is now we have some of these actual applications we can point to as we look at, as you said, building back better of this isn't just big picture thinking, there's real investments that have been made. And now we can take the lessons learned from there and we we can look at those applications and build back even stronger and add more within there. Okay. And I wanted to just circle back to one other thing about kind of how this hits, what consumers should be thinking about this? Because I really feel like a lot of this is more of a, you know, a B2B conversation and how we're power and transportation and things like that. So, you know, if I'm a consumer, how will green hydrogen affect me the most? So, so I do think uh, as, as a consumer right now, where we see the applications, it truly is in the products you're buying, whether it be energy or from companies you're buying from. You know, the analogy we give a lot here, too, is, is people are wondering, am I going to be driving a hydrogen car? And I think what we see right now, the opportunity for hydrogen in the transportation sector is, is somewhat twofold, is you've got the short duration, minimal uses like passenger vehicles. 
those are probably a bit more adept for lithium ion batteries. The long haul trucking, the big, you know, class eight trucks that are going cross country, thousand mile trips, long duration needs. That's where hydrogen plays a perfect role. And it's completely analogous to the power industry. As we just said, for the short duration, those more of those sprints, lithium ion batteries is a much better, more cost effective choice. Those long duration, those long hauls uh, in the power sector, that's where hydrogen makes sense. So we still see that opportunity down on, you know, in these other sectors and down the consumer side where hydrogen batteries are going to continue to complement each other, just different use cases in those sectors as well. Michael, give me your bold predictions on green hydrogen and, and where we'll be, you know, in say five, 10, 20 years. So I, I think the bold prediction is, is I mentioned earlier, we've already hit the tipping point. And I think there's a question of when's hydrogen really going to come to fruition here? Is this all real? And the fact of the matter is, yes, it is. And, and we're making those very tangible investments today. And within the next few years, we're going to see those investments start coming to fruition and where we start seeing hydrogen really take off to the sense that the everyday person will start to see it more. I think certainly within this decade, too, we're going to continue to see significant, significantly more investments across the United States, across other countries, such that we're having the same discussions around hydrogen and the value it's bringing and the opportunities it's bringing across multiple industries, just like we've seen with batteries relatively more recently. And just as we saw solar and wind roughly 15, 20 years ago, where it really took off. Uh, so the 2020s are absolutely going to be a very exciting decade for hydrogen, but more importantly, for the ultimate benefits it's going to provide us and more reliably and cost effectively meeting our goals around reducing carbon emissions. Okay. Well, that sounds like a promising future for that. Exactly. One other thing I want to just circle back on is when you mentioned kind of the the blend between, you know, percentage of, of hydrogen and, and natural gas. So I'm just curious what kind of role politics might play in, in that transition to blend. Cause I'm, I'm picturing a world where if you're from a state where, you know, gas is a key industry, you know, you might want to slow that transition to hundred percent hydrogen. Like, is there any potential where that could become a stumbling block? So I think what we've already seen firsthand is, is those regions and even those companies who have, you know, historically relied on revenues from, you know, certain commodities are recognizing the opportunity at hand. And, and you know, I think we look even the Gulf Coast, we see commitments towards 100% carbon free within the next few decades. So you, know, you do now have states that historically have depended on fossil fuel resources and other commodities that are now also making commitments to that, that transition. I think there is opportunities to, to, to use existing infrastructure. So we talked a lot about the uh, steam methane reforming and being able to you know, have forms of blue hydrogen where we capture the CO2, there's a lot of existing infrastructure. So you know, even those entities to repurpose that existing infrastructure to be able to convert it to carbon-free form. And then over time, as more and more renewables are prevalent in those regions, can add a bigger mix of green hydrogen or maybe green up front too. All those combinations are, are there. You know, I think that there's not necessarily lost opportunity on, on either end to, to be able to get to these carbon-free targets. So right now there's a lot of momentum behind the green recovery, but there's also a lot of challenges out there. So can you kind of explain to me why things might not be as simple as the headlines might say? Sure. You know, I, I think it comes down to industry and companies like Mitsubishi do need to continue to make significant investments in advancing technologies and advancing infrastructure. Uh, even within Mitsubishi ourselves, what have we been doing? Uh, we've been uh, very focused on 
energy storage of all durations and making investments, not just in lithium-ion batteries and hydrogen, but even looking at flow batteries and, and what else is here to come in the future. When we look at digital integration too, how do we look at the opportunity for uh, more intelligent solutions and say digital twins of these technologies and of clean energy? So in uh, even taking into renewable energy themselves, making investments in, uh, say, offshore wind and next generation gas turbines that are continuing to push the envelope uh, and improve efficiencies and reliability and using carbon free forms of energy. So all of this takes an investment and all this takes a commitment by a multitude of technology companies, of utilities, of end users, of government agencies, of, of you know, everyone involved in the value chain. And we are extremely excited to play a, a very important role in that transition and in that commitment that to make this uh, a reality here in the future. Well, that sounds like it's a big challenge, but it sounds like we've got you know the right people working on it. Hey, listen, Michael, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you letting me geek out with you on the salt caverns there. And uh, I also appreciate your bold predictions. I love it. Yep. This has been fun. Thanks for your time. Thanks a lot, Sean. Really appreciate it. Now it's time for the pod brief segment of today's show. So I just want to chime in with a few thoughts about greenwashing. Greenwashing is when an organization overstates the green and or sustainable benefits of an investment or initiative. Let's be honest. In some cases, overstates might be too kind a word. Organizations are simply lying. In recent days, the UK has announced an investigation into how energy providers label and market their offerings, while an organization known as Greenwatch has released an analysis that uses artificial intelligence to determine if what corporations say about their climate initiatives matches their actions. Both of these developments are undoubtedly good, but they also highlight how subjective some environmental and sustainability claims can be. There are no generally accepted standards for what constitutes green or sustainable, so your green might look pretty gray to me, and vice versa. It's not going to be easy, but the marketplace needs to find a way to develop globally accepted standards for key terms and principles. There's simply too much money and an environment on the line. Start with basic, basic benchmarks and go from there. With billions of dollars flooding into green and sustainable investing, it's crucial to separate the companies that <laughs> overstate their performance from those that actually deliver. Without some kind of generally accepted standards, I'm afraid greenwashing will always simply be in the eye of the beholder. So that's all I've got. Once again, I'd like to thank the exclusive sponsor of today's episode, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues and be sure to follow us on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at RenewablesPod. And if you'd like a daily dose of renewable news delivered to your inbox, head to smartbrief.com and sign up for the Renewable Energy Smart Brief. The Renewable Energy Smart Pod is a production of Smart Brief, a future company. <laughs>